Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Hey you, welcome back to the School of Unlearning podcast. Today I'm very excited to introduce my guest, Sean Askinosi. In 2006, Sean Askinosi left a successful career as a criminal defense lawyer to begin a bean-to-bar chocolate factory, and he hasn't looked back since. Askinosi Chocolate is a small-batch, award-winning chocolate factory located in Springfield, Missouri, sourcing 100% of their beans directly from farmers that they profit share with on three continents. This summer will mark Sean's 43rd origin trip, where he flies to each of these farms and gets to know his farmers, shares meals with them, and develops these incredible relationships. Recently named by Forbes one of the 25 best small companies in America, Askinosi Chocolate has also been featured in New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, on Bloomberg, MSNBC, and numerous other national and international media outlets. Sean was named by O, Oprah Magazine, one of the 15 guys who are saving the world. He's been awarded honorary doctorates from the University of Missouri-Columbia and Missouri State University. Seth Godin, one of my favorite entrepreneurs and authors, recently praised the company model of Askinosi Chocolate by saying, Sean has built a practice of creating a worthwhile luxury good that directly benefits people, not sort of, not a little, but directly. Sean is a family brother at the Assumption Abbey, a Trappist monastery near Ava, Missouri, and is also the co-founder of Lost and Found, a grief center serving children and families in southwest Missouri. His new book, which is how I found his work, is called Meaningful Work, The Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul, is one that he wrote with his daughter, Lauren, and you can find it on Amazon. So I first came across Sean's work by reading his book. I don't know how I got, came across this book, but I read it immediately and I fell in love with his spiritual and incredibly thorough approach to finding a vocation, not just in your personal life, but in your work. I immediately started to Google and find out where his chocolate was sold. I rode my car down to a little specialty shop here in Brooklyn. I bought a bar or two. I sat in my car and I savored them and enjoyed them. I'm someone who loves to find meaning, not shocking, <laughs> in the things that I do and also the foods that I eat. And if you know me, you know that chocolate is sort of a love language for me. So it's really honestly a great honor and a great pleasure to share this episode with you. Um, this episode is deeply personal. Sean and I connect on a, um, a very human level about grief and loss and um, finding meaning. And of course, we talk about chocolate quite a bit. So sit back and enjoy this episode and uh, share it with those who you think would benefit. All right. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the School of Unlearning. Hi. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so we were just chatting before I pressed record about how much I love um, Askinosi chocolate and uh, the product itself and also what the product represents uh, for the world and for, um, for, for people who consume it and also the people who help make it, which is, I think, what makes your brand really special and quite intentional. Um, on the School of Unlearning podcast, I, we talk a lot about unlearning, you know, constructs and beliefs and habits that we have to kind of challenge and work with. But I think you and I both know a lot of that begins with our first core learnings. So I'd love for you to maybe share with the audience a little bit about um, some pivotal moments and key um, influential people who helped shape you and your um, worldview when you were younger growing up. Um, and then we'll definitely get into the chocolate and 
you know, direct trade and all that amazing stuff. Sure. The, my dad was a, a lawyer. Um, and so that was kind of the, the uh, table discussion at home. Um, and he was back then in the sixties and seventies, there weren't as many specialists, um, as there are now. And so he did a lot of everything, but the thing that seemed really interesting to me that was the most exciting was the criminal work that he did. And he also did a lot of civil rights work and he started legal aid in our community for people who couldn't afford lawyers. And my mom was a community volunteer. And so that's, that was, a, a I think, really a major influence on me just as a little kid. Um, growing up and talking about those issues um, as a family and <clears throat> the, um, the, I guess the, the major thing that really shook my world and influenced my life as a young person was when my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And, um, I guess I was 12 when he was diagnosed and 14 when he died. Um, and that was, uh, that, that, um, was and remains probably one of the greatest influences of my life. Uh, because it was sort of a, it was a terrible situation, of course, when anyone has a parent or sibling or loved one that dies. Um, but what made it really terrible was the, the way in which it was handled. Uh, this is the early 70s. And my dad, my dad was raised Jewish. Um, you might imagine by my last name, Ashkenazi, which is really Ashkenazi. And, and, um, he married uh, my mom, a, a Southern Baptist farm girl from Missouri, and the, the families got along amazingly well. So my grandparents, you know, lived in New York and were, were immigrants, and um, my other grandparents were farmers, Southern Baptist farmers, but they got along really well. And anyway, so uh, I grew wow. up Episcopalian, and and uh, but when my dad got sick, these people from the church came over. And they would lay hands on him, and there was a little prayer group formed of about 15 people. And the leader, a, a man, told me one time to never talk with my dad about death, that if I did, it would be a sign of mm -hmm. doubt and that he wouldn't be healed. And so I didn't talk with my dad about mm -hmm. it, and my dad kept getting sicker and sicker. The cancer spread. I was really worried. You know, I remember... You know, I rode the bus to, to school and I remember this would have been in middle school. I'd get off the bus and run home to see if he was still alive. I, I can remember that mm. like it was, you know, yesterday. And um, yeah. but cancer is really a very um, unusual disease in that often when people have it, they go through periods where they don't even seem that sick. They can go to work and live life and, mm -hmm. and then they get sick and then they're not. And my dad was in court trying a case the week before he died. But, um, yeah. and I was with him when he died. It was sudden, even though the cancer had spread everywhere, but he'd just been in court. He'd just been on a church retreat to a monastery, which we can talk about later. Um, and he just looked up and stopped breathing uh, about 1030 that night. And I was by his bed and uh, helping him get a drink of water. And um, that moment was the moment that has really shaped my life because in that moment I was 
um, unprepared. My mom really didn't know what to do to help me. She was unprepared, young. And um, I was begging God out loud to not let him die. You know, please, please don't let him die. And um, and he did. And then um, to make matters even worse, now it's about midnight and the prayer group people were coming over and two women from the prayer group took me upstairs to my parents' bedroom where my dad's body was and he'd been dead for a couple of hours. And uh, they tried to raise him from the dead. They tried to bring him back to life um, and mm. with me there. And they said that he really didn't want to come back. And here I am, a 14-year-old. And that was, mm. that moment was the pivotal moment for me. And it really influenced, it, didn't, it influenced um, every single thing that followed. Um, to this moment now in this conversation. And so um, that, I think, is probably a good place to just let that be an answer to your question. Yeah. Um, You write about this really eloquently in your book, Meaningful Work, um, and about a lot of these sort of feelings and experiences. I'm I know it's been such a huge driver as a pivotal turning moment in your life. I'm curious what at the time it taught you about grief and death and how now you view grief and death. At the time, uh, grief and death, um, pain and struggle, um, that at the time it taught me, or I should say my resolve, my resolve at the time literally at that moment. And, you know, I was in middle school getting ready to start high school was okay. Okay. All right. This is the way it's going to be. Thank you, God, for nothing. Um, Thanks for not being there. Thanks for not listening. Thanks for showing me nothing. Uh, I'm going to show you that um, I can be somebody. I can achieve and I can um, do it on my own. I don't need you. Mm-hmm. And that's what it taught me. It's what it taught me about grief and death and heartbreak and sorrow. And um, and so I live my life that way. Often we know that grief, especially for young people, adolescent grief, there, there are some paths, many paths that young people can walk after the death of a loved one that are not healthy um, and if unaddressed can lead to really unfortunate outcomes in life. Mm -hmm. We think about those things like, you know, prison, um, not working, drugs, alcohol, but we don't often think about, well, what about just overachieving type A, hard driving people that don't let up for a millisecond. And that was me. Mm -hmm. So that's what I, Mm -hmm. that's what I learned from that. And now it's, how much time do you have? Uh, Let's see. Uh, We, I mean, now how I think about those things uh, (laughs) is, is completely different. And that um, shifted for me. It shifted for me um, 
it shifted for me, you know, like maybe 20, 25 years after my dad's death. And at this point now I'm a successful criminal defense lawyer, you know, high profile, um, choice of cases, national reputation, never lost a jury trial, um, built my reputation on the defense of murder cases, a lot of money, notoriety, um, and at the conclusion of a, of a murder trial or near the conclusion, I had another pivotal moment in my life and that shifted to everything. And, and that combined with reading the book Tuesdays with Maury really changed my life. And, Mm -hmm. and I I think that book Mm -hmm. itself really was pivotal for me. And then I co-founded a grief center for children here. That's now been going for 21 Mm -hmm. years and, we serve all of Southwest Missouri um, children and families for free, grieving the death of a loved one. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, a few years after that, I started the Chocolate Factory. And um, uh, so I remain really engaged in this grief center called Lost and Found and um, and work with young people um, my age at the time when my dad died. Um, and yeah. So I, I have had a, shall we say, a learning of grief and death and sorrow and an unlearning of grief and death and sorrow Mm -hmm. that I, that I thought I knew and Mm -hmm. then a learning again, a learning again of those things. And now today, you know, um, I'm in the process of unlearning again. That's, this is life. Mm. (laughs) This is life. This is, yeah. It's like a, you know, it's interesting. I talk a lot about this idea of unlearning, obviously on this podcast, but it's so nuanced. It's so complex and it's different for everybody and it kind of never ends. And you can, you can unlearn something and you have to reorient yourself to the topic again and again and again. And that's like human evolution. That's the beauty of being alive. Um, I want to go back to what you shared about what you weren't given, which was space to talk, space to grieve as a young child and how that shaped you. You know, it certainly sounds like the success you create in the beginning was definitely like, I will prove it to you, God, I will be a successful person and man, I don't need you. And in some ways it sounds like a trauma motivation. And now you've moved over to a space, what I would call like an empathy motivation um, because you, you had to go through that or maybe not had to, but you, you went through that incubation period of just like feeling isolated and yet motivated to make sense of life. Um, how does this now shape? Cause I know you are a father. Um, when you talk about, you weren't given the opportunity to have conversations around death and grief. And now as you're a father and you're a grandfather, how does this now shape the way you show up in family dynamics or relationships? And obviously you founded a center, but in your own personal relationships, like having conversations with your daughter and your family around these pivotal moments, how does that shape for you, shape you or show up for you? The best example I can think is that um, when my daughter Lauren was nine, who by the way, I should mention is a co-author with me in this book, uh, and and works yes. with me in the yes, chocolate I'm factory. Um, um, when she was nine, she was the one who read Tuesdays with Maury to me out loud. Um, I'd purchased the book for mm-hmm. my wife. At the time, I didn't read books like that. I read books like 
how to cross examine people um, to tears or things like that. And uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't interested, but um, I said, okay, you know, this will be good. Lauren can read it to me. And, and um, while she was reading this book to me, um, I recall ha- having moments of just raw emotion that I didn't want to show in front of her. So she would read and then mm-hmm. I would say, you know, I needed to excuse myself and go to the bathroom or whatever and cry and uh, then come back mm-hmm. and she'd keep reading. But she knew what was happening. <laughs> I wasn't hiding anything from her. And that opened up a real um, dialogue, a, a, a sincere dialogue with her about that. And, um, and it really has never stopped. And so she has really been, uh, you know, had kind of a front row seat to my transformation over the years. Um, and, um, but, you know, honestly, um, she, that, this, when a person in a family, like, well, let's say me, if I experience trauma and there is zero question that, that what I described to you earlier was trauma. And I, and I didn't, I forgot to mention that also while he was sick, my mom could not bring herself to give him pain shots. She just couldn't do it. And he was in such pain with Mm. bone cancer and lung cancer and brain cancer. And this was before hospice. Um, So I did it. When I was 13, I gave my dad Demerol shots throughout the day and night um, and she just couldn't do it. And that was really, at the time I was, I wanted to help. I was like, let me, let me do it. I can do it. I want to help. But over the years, Mm -hmm. I realized that that actually also layered additional trauma. And so what I'm saying, how that, how you, you might think, oh, wait, what does that have to do with Lauren? Well, my daughter, um, we, um, we pass it on, you know, we pass trauma on, um, generationally, um, sometimes, Mm -hmm. um, epigenetically. Um, and, and Mm -hmm. I believe that. And so I, 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 unfortunately I, I imagine, and I'm pretty sure that I, I passed that trauma on to my daughter. Um, and so, um, while the light, um, of transformation is healing, sometimes it doesn't, um, completely supersede or, um, overlay all of the trauma beneath it. And so, uh, that can, that can mean a pretty bumpy ride, especially as you, Mm-hmm. And you talk about this in your podcast and, um, but especially as you begin to do this work, it can be pretty bumpy. It can be a, a bumpy ride. Yeah. And that's, so I don't want to yeah. make it sound like it's all, you know, unicorns and rainbows, um, because I was able to have these conversations with my daughter and my wife who we've been married for 34 years. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. so she also has, has, has seen this and been, a great, um, support to me, you know, during, during these times. 
Yeah. Well, I think what you're, you know, sharing in your experience with Lauren, and it also sounds like very, very endearing and sweet that she she brought Tuesdays with Maury to you and helped sort of add another chapter of understanding and processing grief to your world, which is a gift. Um, well, you know, well, you talk well, a lot about I, in your yes. book. Yeah. No, no, no. I just wanted to say, and, and I, and thank you for saying that, but I, I, before we just leave that, I wanted to say too, and Lauren had her daughter Goldie and Goldie is, uh, Goldie Bell is her name. And, um, and she's 14 months old. And so to further answer your question, I have not had, you know, I haven't had conversations with Goldie, but I've spent a lot of time with her in her 14 months. And it's one of the greatest Mm-hmm. Um, experiences of my life. I mean, I, I, it, the experience of babysitting her or rocking her to sleep and being with her and pushing her in her stroller, um, I would say might be it. I would categorize it as maybe one of the, if not the greatest experience of my life to date. And so mm. what the reason it connects to the question that you're asking, or you asked me is that now I have an opportunity to um, be present to Goldie in a way that is even more present than I could ever have been for my daughter, Lauren, or others, um, mm-hmm. because I'm older and I've, you know, um, come down this path a ways. And so, and I'm, I'm learning mm-hmm. from Goldie now. I'm learning from her, mm-hmm. but I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. No, that's great. I mean, it, the way you're talking about um, your granddaughter, Goldie, and uh, also the relationship with Lauren, your daughter, I, I don't know. I don't have children yet, but I always feel like what people say is when they have a grandchild, it's like love amplified, like they love their child unconditionally, and then they have a child, and it it's this continuum of our experience here on earth, and then you get a chance right. to do it with a you know, sweet little one, you know, it's, I don't know. Yes, I'm, yes. I'm happy you have that experience and you get to see her so often, you know? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I wanted to know that actually, have you heard of the author Ross Gay? No, I haven't. He He's, um, he's, I'll send you, um, one of his books. It's called the book of delights and he's an author and he talks a lot about he, each chapter is a book of like, sort of daily moments that he's noticed that he's finds he finds delight in it's a beautiful book and one of his lines one of his chapters he says um you know maybe maybe when we combine our sorrow maybe that's joy and i thought of him and your work and you talk a lot about in your book meaningful work the the importance and the connection of joy and sorrow um so i wanted to know what comes up when you hear ross's quote you know maybe if we combine our sorrows maybe that's joy what comes up for you Our greatest, our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. That's Khalil Gibran. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what he's saying. I, I think that's spot on. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we unmask our sorrows, we find great joy. And the deeper the sorrow, the greater the joy, he says. And, mm-hmm. um, You know, I talk a lot about grief being the other side of love. I mean, it's, but we often find um, resistance to this 
challenge and struggle of of being with our sorrow and being present to our broken hearts. It's mm-hmm. and to read about it is good, you know, to for someone to listen to listen to a podcast about it is good. To read about it is good. But the challenge is then to translate that um, into um, into I I, I don't want to say action. I almost said action, but to translate it into um, presence in your life, and that is a real challenge. Yeah. It's a work. It's a life work. But mm-hmm. that therein lies the greatest possible joy in your life. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. well, okay. Let's 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 bring it back to what. But for the heartbreak that I've just described to you over the last minutes, I would not have the complete and total joy of rocking Goldie to sleep at night. It wouldn't. Mm-hmm. I would. Yes, of course, I would be happy. I would think this is great. I love this. But I can tell you from personal experience that it would not be the joy that it is today, but for the heartbreak in my life. Yeah. It, um, it's certainly, it's in those years and those moments when you were a young boy, you know, there was no good and joy to be had from it. It was traumatic and the trauma was real for you. And for a lot of people listening, who've gone through similar situations or are going through that, um, I think the the work of great artists and poets and writers and people out there is that their work helps us believe in getting through the grief and making meaning from the grief and that that when we do it does add another layer of like richness and depth to our life and our ability to appreciate that joy which um you know I think uh, needs to be amplified and I think that a lot of your work does that too so I so appreciate that um I'm going through a similar situation, well, not similar situation, a, a similar situation of grieving. Um, I talk about this often. My dad has late stage dementia, um, a mm. form of neurological decline that sort of renders him not capable of seeing and walking and, of course, mem- like remembering. Um, it's been about 11 years now of walking with him through this path and him. And I think of him and he would love your book, by the way. He very much liked that growing up. Um, and I, it's a share number one that I understand that. And number two, I, I've had years where I'm just like, this is not human. Like, why would this happen? This is not okay to, I understand we're all going to die. I get that. Like, that's the most common thing we have in in common. Like we're all going to pass, but I'm like, sometimes I get so mad. I'm like, why do we have to crawl to the finish line? Like, where's the humanity and the dignity in that? And I've had years where I'm just angry, you know, just like mad, like this man who had this great soul who wanted to like do all these things is is struggling in that way. And that's not unique to him, right? That's everybody, but I'm watching it. And then I have these moments with him where I go to, I drive to New Jersey to see him usually once a week and we're sitting on the couch and, you know, he's silent. He's mostly quiet now these days. He doesn't say a lot. And then out of nowhere, he'll just say, there's only love. Like will be hours of silence. And then he's just like, it's just love. He'll just burst out in these things. And these things are just going on in his mind and his soul, even though his mind is atrophying. And I'm just, 
there's immense heartbreak. Sometimes I feel numb to, and other times I'm just like, oh, like I get to decide the meaning from this, but it's a moment of joy and sorrow that um, the little moments of joy with him these days allow me to keep moving. You know, it's just these little micro moments of joy with him that somehow allow me to keep make, making meaning from it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> How much influence has that had, like, say, the last 11 years over your own daily life? So your your let's say your professional life or how you spend your day. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it has driven me to sort of like you mentioned earlier on in life is like achieve, achieve, like make sense of this independent of the heartbreak. And I think for many years, it drove me to just squeeze every inch of possibility and potential out of life because I was like, it could end. And also he would want that. And in the last couple of years, I've softened a bit. I'm less determined to squeeze every inch out of life. I'm more just determined to enjoy the inches. And I think that's helpful. Um, I attribute some psychedelic experiences, <laughs> guided psychedelic experiences to that. And a lot of meditation, a lot of prayer and a lot of time in nature to just making peace with it. And um, so I'm less, um, I'm less determined to squeeze things out of life more just to appreciate them. But I still have my moments, you know. Mm-hmm. Would you say that? But I think those about. No, go ahead. Go, no, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. You said I think about. Go I, ahead. Yeah. One of the things I think about and similar to your work is you're, you're also, you're a creator, you're an activist, social good, and also you're a storyteller. And I think about him and his life growing up. He was a storyteller. And I think about this idea of being a part of a continuum a lot. And when I was little, like very little, I'm the youngest of seven kids for anyone listening, just for context, (laughs) we lived in this little town in Pennsylvania and he would write in the school, he would write in the town newspaper, little articles every Sunday. So he was, he loved to write, he was a journalist. And I think about this podcast and telling stories and sharing them. And I think, you know, I told him the other day, I was like, I have a podcast. He's like, what? So (laughs) he doesn't know what it is. But I think a lot about the continuum of like carrying on, you know, the traits that he has given all of us and this idea that I know he'd be proud and he is inherently, but, um, yeah, I think about that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was going to ask is did those experiences that, that you described the psychedelics, prayer, meditation, were those the sort of pivotal moment for you when you described you sort of shifted to, um, not being so feel like, you were so pressed to squeeze every moment of every of every day. Were those the the, the experiences that yeah, helped you with that? They were helpful. I mean, a lot of meditation retreats, um, and then years of just small daily practice at home. But the one experience this past June, I was in Costa Rica, and we set intentions, and we fasted, and we did this experience to connect with our world with um, psilocybin mushroom. And it was beautiful because one of the things I got from it, I don't know who was telling me the, all these things when you're on this journey, so to speak, is that there's so much more. There's so much more out there. There's so much more than we can even begin to fathom and I, that I don't need to be scared for him or for for me. And I think that was really reassuring. I think it was something that I've heard a lot through different religious texts and also just being a human and poetry, but 
to really experience it on a different physiological level was really helpful for me. It shifted things pretty tremendously. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, <clears throat> consciously doing those activities, like with the right intention really helped me shift a little bit, but um, everyone has their own experience and pivotal moments in shifting, <laughs> you know? So. Well, the reason I bring, the reason I ask is because um, you said something I think that is, that is key. Um, and that is sometimes for some people, I don't know exactly why there are probably books written on it, but when you experience, um, pain and heartbreak over a number of years, let's say like you have with your dad, um, or me with my dad. Um, we, we don't want to, we, we find ourselves not wanting to feel the way we're feeling and we don't really know what to do mm -hmm. about it. And we read and we read and we talk to people and <clears throat> we can intellectualize mm -hmm. concepts that seem like they would provide a kind of balm for our woes and our troubles. But sometimes the experience is so buried in us and so much a part of who we think we are, even though they aren't, we can talk about that later, but um, mm -hmm. that it requires what you said, and that is a, a physiological, that was the word you used, um, understanding. Mm -hmm. I call it a knowing, a knowing. It's one thing mm -hmm. to have faith in something or to even sort of intellectualize concepts, but it's quite another to have a knowing experience. And often I think knowing is connected to, at least for me, and I think maybe based on what you just said, you, a sort of um, physiological shift, you know, that, that gives us, and I'm not, and I'm not talking about certainty here. I don't mean to say that I'm, I'm, I'm just right. saying that it's a knowing experience. And then what happens, I think, and maybe you, maybe you share this, I do, but um, then what happens is once you have a knowing experience, the next one comes easier. And then the next is easier after mm -hmm. that. Why? Because we're open to it. Mm -hmm. We're ready for it, not necessarily yeah. to be the same that it was before, but we're open to that, um, to mm. the wonder of it in a way that we weren't before, mm. not because we didn't want to be, mm -hmm. but because the, the pain was seemingly unreachable. Yeah. yeah I think it's, it's and really interesting. That, you, you know, an ayahuasca or, you know, something like that can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I think that it's really interesting. You are, are clear about knowing is not certainty. It's not that it's sort of, to me, it feels like a deep sort of guttural deep level of intuition of just this, un, this grand understanding of this temporal experience that we're all having. And then these, these moments of grief and these moments of loss and trauma. And the one thing for me that is helpful, and I don't know if it was helpful for you at some point when you made peace with, or 
you came to a different level of understanding about your dad's passing was um, I developed uh, in these micro moments with him leaving and coming and going and not being sure what I would see when I came next to see him is this level of uh, like emotional confidence that not just this knowing that this is part of this experience and this is actually very painful, but very in intentional by <laughs> whomever is orchestrating like this whole mm -hmm. song and dance on planet earth. It was just this sense of confidence. Like I can handle this loss. I can handle another thing. Maybe the next time I see him, he can't speak fully and I can, I can handle another layer of loss. And that confidence has helped me each time sit with it and sit with it and sit with it. And that is the only way I could, th that's the way I've shaped my experience to go through it is just that I think when we have confidence in our capacity to sit with grief, we can sit with it longer and sit with it more. And it's, 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 it's like a skill in some ways you end up being more able to sit with a person in grief versus running away from it at times. So I don't know if that resonates with you, but that's what's coming up for me on my end is like this sense of confidence and almost like a skill building, which is very contrary to what a lot of people think about with grief and death. It's like, what? <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe that's how I'm like manufacturing it in my head, but. I think grief and sorrow and heartbreak are a language that we can, if we choose um, to develop some fluency with, and it sounds like mm -hmm. that's what you've done with your dad. It's almost uh, like when you were saying that, I was thinking that it's, it's almost like you have this confidence in being able to handle not handling it. Um, mm -hmm. which totally. is, which yeah. is, um, which means that we're, we're, um, we can allow ourselves to, Pema Chodron has a book called, um, when things fall apart. And so we can, we can let things yeah. fall apart and at the same time have this almost non-dual experience of knowing that, mm -hmm. um, as you say, gives us confidence that it's going to be okay. Yeah. That's a beautiful book. Um, shout out to Pema, whoever is listening, go read her books. Mm. She's a yes. great wonder. Please. Um, yes. I, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if this is connected entirely. When you said earlier, generational trauma that we, that we passed that on, I firmly believe that too. I, you know, books like the body keeps the score sort of speak to that. And, other bodies of work speak to this idea of generational trauma. Um, and we've also been talking about this physiological response of feeling our way through trauma, not thinking our way through trauma and how important that is um, to transform the energy of loss. And I want to ask you what relationship making chocolate, because it's a physical relationship is with your hands and your senses and you have to taste the chocolate and you share it. It's definitely a full body experience chocolate. So I want to see, um, if you can connect the dots on just your or the beginning days of you making chocolate, I know you were a full-time lawyer at the time, and what relationship that's had to you working with your human experience or grief at all. The, um, the beginning of this chocolate making experience for me was really um, just, I didn't know how to cook. I didn't know how to make anything. And I, I bought a big green egg to have a hobby and then I started grilling and 
then, you know, I started baking after that. And then I started making chocolate desserts and, um, not really understanding where chocolate came from. And, and so when I was making chocolate for the first time, it seemed kind of, um, magical to me. And I think that's one of the things that drew me in because I was really searching and my book is really about this kind of five year path of, of still practicing law, still doing my day job, but searching for what to do next. And I was looking for something that would inspire me. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to feel like electrified by the work the way I did for law for 20 years. And I wasn't finding it, but there was just something drawing me in about chocolate. It was mysterious. Um, it was magical. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I picked it over cupcakes, because I actually almost did cupcakes, is that Hmm. I knew there was no end to the learning process of making chocolate because there were so many variables, so many things can change that will make it interesting and new because it can never be the same twice, you know, starting from the crop hmm. of beans to, you know, new farmers to new methods of roasting and fermentation and flavor development. And I, I just knew that I, I knew I would, no matter how much time I spent in chocolate, I knew I would never reach the end of understanding. And so, and, and finally yeah. one day, you yeah, know, fair. declare myself the expert. Um, and so mm -hmm. that is one of the big things that drew me, but I would say the sort of the, um, full body experience for me has been more on the side of travel and connecting with people mm -hmm. at a human level, um, than the actual hands in the chocolate so what I mean by that is, you know, working with farmers from around the world, I go visit them every year. Um, and at least I did in the before times. And hopefully I'll be, you know, traveling again, you know, soon to Tanzania, Philippines, Amazon, Ecuador, mm -hmm. where we buy beans. And some of these farmers I've been buying beans from for 15 years. And, and so I have a relationship yeah. with them and I know their families and, and, uh, they mean something to me and I know that I mean something to them. One time I was in Tanzania right. and talking to this elder in the community, a farmer, and we were, there were some other people in his house and they wanted to know what nursing homes were in the United States. They didn't understand it. And he asked me if, mm. and once I kind of explained it, he said, well, when it's that time for you, we'd like for you to come and stay with us and we'll take care of you. And uh, he wasn't joking. Wow. And that's the kind of relationship that I have with farmers. And that has, you know, that exists to this day. And it's one of the reasons why during COVID that we've received some of the best beans we've ever had in years. I didn't go look at anything. They just did it because mm -hmm. they care about us. You know, they care about me. And that has been quite um, heartwarming and gratifying. And, the other thing that we do that mm -hmm. really is very experiential is, you know, working with young people and trying to inspire young people in our community about small business and farmers and the world around them. And, and, um, that's our mm -hmm. chocolate university program. And so those, those, those experiences for me have been more, um, um, piercing in the sense of, um, in the sense of it, experiencing the veil lifted, um, in rare moments that I'm able to see when it happens. And that really is the mm -hmm. best way I know to connect the dots 
Um, because that's what we've been talking about, you know, those moments of, of um, seeing uh, and knowing. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. I have experienced those at work too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that about your work. Um, I'd love for you to also talk a little bit about the value and the importance of direct trade versus a lot of the other um, sort of ways that we target with target and market chocolate, like fair trade. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about direct trade and why it's so important to Eskinosi chocolate and also to the farmers that you work with in the world around you? I learned about direct trade from Intelligentsia Coffee based in Chicago, and they were my mentors on this in the beginning 15 years ago. And they really pioneered this effort in coffee around the world. And the, the reason I think the reason it's important to me is because it's relationship driven and um, as opposed mm-hmm. to third party certification driven like fair trade. And ultimately, farmers mm-hmm. get more money in our version of direct trade. Um, fair trade study after study tells us that the farmers, the ones actually, you know, toiling away in the harvest are not the ones who receive the premium that is paid to um, fair trade commodity traders of cocoa. So I don't, I can't speak to any other commodity, but cocoa in that way. when it comes to fair trade, I think fair trade has become sort of a victim of its own good marketing and people feel like they're making a, a, mm. a, a conscientious purchase when they do that. And unfortunately, the farmers just don't get the money. But for us, it means going there. It means helping them open bank accounts, which we've done in every instance, to pay them directly. It means profit sharing with them. We've profit shared since day one with farmers. And it means translating our financial statements into their language so they can understand how the profit share right. is calculated. Um, and, and, and all of that combined together makes for better tasting chocolate, we think, because, and you kind of alluded to this at the beginning of the show, which is um, who we are as people and the service that we provide or the product that we make is inseparable from who we are. It's, it's, we can't, we mm-hmm. can't do it. Mm-hmm. And so if this is part of right. who we are, that is relationship driven chocolate with these farmers and working on community development projects with them, then if that's who we are and who we represent, then I think we're going to, we're going to have good chocolate. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned earlier in the, also in your book too, in the podcast that you're, you come from a family who you have, your grandparents have history in farming and agriculture Mm -hmm. and how important that is. I'm sure that shaped you to some degree in this pursuit. Well, uh, literally before the podcast started, um, I was reading through letters mm-hmm. that my grandparents had written me in the 80s. And um, I found them in my basement over the weekend. I hadn't seen them in a long, long time. So before the podcast, my preparation for the podcast was to read the letters that my grandparents had written me that I hadn't seen in maybe 35 years. And it's wow. it'll be hard for me to share this. Um without becoming emotional, but I will tell you that, um, my grandfather, my grandparents were both, um, people who led a simple life. My grandfather didn't have over a seventh grade education. My grandmother, a fifth grade education. They were married over 65 years. They lived on the same farm for over 65 years. They were very 
kind people. They help their neighbors, their neighbors helped them Mm -hmm. and they worked really hard. And I've met a lot of people in my life, a lot of people I've traveled all over the world many times, but I find that they are the ones who inspire me more than almost anyone else that I've known to the point Mm -hmm. that when I'm with farmers, uh, cocoa farmers now, not only am I honoring the work of my grandparents, but I feel like I'm with my grandparents in a sense. I, I sense mm-hmm. their presence mm-hmm. with me when I'm with farmers, you know, that are speaking Swahili or whatever. And my, they, they, they weren't wealthy farmers. They had 300 acres with some cows and chickens and a garden. And, and um, mm-hmm. that's who they were. And to read their letters about, you know, the garden and the weather and Mm -hmm. going fishing Mm -hmm. and other family members, they were just simple kindnesses that I'm sure that when I read those in the eighties, I dismissed them. I don't now, Mm -hmm. just as when I was a teenager and I spent so much time on their farm, I didn't want to bale hay or do those chores or go, you know, collect the eggs Mm -hmm. and hoe the garden. And I didn't, I was probably a jerk about it, especially in my high school years. But so I regret that now. (laughs) I regret that behavior, but my grandparents know, you know, I, I really believe they know how much they mean to me now and how they inspire me now and how they drive me, you know, in this business that I have. Um, so I, I, I welcome their continued influence in my daily life. Yeah. I feel like maybe our teens and twenties were trying to get away from everything that represents home and lineage and soul and spirit. I mean, like not majority, but like a lot of times (laughs) that's why the teen years are rough Mm -hmm. and the twenties is like, you know, you're just like escaping. You might move to a new city, take on the job that is everything but your family. You really do. And then I feel like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, your thirties, forties, fifties, you just keep coming home. It it does feel like the older I get, I'm not, I'm like 37. I'm a whopping 37 here, but the older I get, Mm -hmm. I'm just like, it feels like a coming home and coming home to Again, I keep talking about this idea of like a continuum, this idea of lineage, this idea of spirit and soul. And obviously our grandparents and our parents and even our the next generation, our grandchildren represent all of that. But also it's found in it's found in the experiences of of farming and the product that you now make. And I think that's why I love a company like yours, Askinosi Chocolate, because every time I eat it, I'm like, there's like a soul to it. There's like literal soul. I'm like, I know the story, I know the people. And to me, like from a consumption perspective, like that's, that's kind of like essential. Like I, I need meaning in food or else I just, because it's comes from the earth. Like I can't go eat mm-hmm. random chocolate that doesn't have a story. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I do. And I think that what happens in our twenties, you know, or our teens and twenties for some, some in their thirties, for some in their sixties, but we spend a lot of time developing our, what Thomas Merton would call our false self or separate self. Mm -hmm. So as we're exercising that muscle, which can become quite strong, um, (laughs) we, we are, um, we are stepping away from, 
um, who we really are. And then I think we have these moments and these opportunities, as, as we talked about earlier, these pivotal moments of possible transformation. We could go either way. We can either mm-hmm. see it mm-hmm. and step into it mm-hmm. and embrace it for all of its pain and sorrow. And, and as, as, as um, poet philosopher John O'Donohue says, to step into the threshold, you know, the in-between place. It, it mm-hmm. can be very uncomfortable. It can be dark. Um, but when we do, then we have this opportunity to sort of, to use your word pivot and another word phrase that I've heard you use Mm -hmm. in your podcast is become who we are. And when we Mm -hmm. take the opportunity to become who we are, we are unlearning all of the, you know, development and process of exercising and, and, of this separate self, this false self, because that's not who we are. It's mm-hmm. nothing. It's, it's a, it's, it's, it's not real in the non-dual yeah. sense. It's not real. It's, it's not yeah. the true self. And so as we sometimes age or we find ourselves faced with these moments in time that are challenging, then we can return return and return again and again and again and become acquainted with mm-hmm. who we are and who, who, who our true selves um, represent themselves to be. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about a few things. Um, one of the things you talk about in your book, um, Meaningful Work, is the sort of steps and process to find a vocation Um, and how within a job, you can find a vocation within a job. And also you can find a personal vocation. And what I really love about your steps, I'm just going to read them for the audience here, just if they don't have the book themselves. I'd love for you to talk about how you came up with these steps and how you still personally use them and iterate upon your vocation, if you do, year after year. Um, So yes, you say in the beginning of your book, steps to uncover your personal vocation. Step one, don't try to find it by endless research. Step two, inventory your talents, your passion, and what the world needs. Step three, begin with your sorrow. Step four, serve selflessly. Step five, expect nothing in return. Step six, discover the internal space where you can ponder your next steps with clarity. This is a wonderful um, formula and process to think about finding vocation. So what does vocation mean to you, and, and how did this this six step process come to life for you? The, the idea of vocation or calling is, um, often it's, it's often in, in a place of hiding in, in us, um, waiting to, um, be heard, um, I think it's always there. I think it's an expression of our souls. Um, and we um, have opportunities and periods in our life when we can see that and hear it more clearly than others. And I also think that how we interpret it at different times in our life um, is change, something that changes, you know, with time. And as you mm-hmm. said, for me, so I'm continually in the process of listening to the fine tunings of what might be my vocation, you know, this year or 
this month or next month um, and can even relate it mm-hmm. specifically to projects, to projects that I'm working on. And so one of the things for me is that one of the things for me, especially recently, is that I'm learning to um, not do certain things. So what, so in other words, so sometimes a vocation can be that of a negative, which is, uh, uh, oh, okay, it's my voc- vocation to not do this, um, which might be a really, you know, socially beneficial thing for the world, but I'm not going to do it. Mm. And um, mm-hmm. so that's the recent part for me. But I would say in terms of these steps, which I hate to even call them steps in some way because they are, I mean, I know I listed them that way, but I don't want it to sound as a prescription because I'm, I'm just hopeful that some right. in your audience will, you know, connect to this idea. Um, and really it's centered on um, kind of peeling back the onion and layer after layer. And the first, the first idea is, you know, just, you're not going to find this in the Google search box, please. I'm begging you don't do it. Um, I've tried it. Many right. Millions of people have tried it. And, and let me just say parenthetically, you know, in August, 4.3 million people quit their jobs. That's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the workforce mm-hmm. is literally just falling away in such measure that our economy has never seen this before. It, well, at least as far as them mm-hmm. keeping records. And Gallup says that 41% of the American workforce is actively thinking about quitting their jobs. <laughs> okay. And so yeah. these many, many, many people are going to quit their jobs today. Somebody's going to quit their job. They will find another job and they're going to find it because, oh, this feels better. It seems better. It's shiny. It's a new thing. They want me. That mm-hmm. feels good. Okay, cool. When do I start? Monday? Awesome. Or maybe, maybe they will say, I'm going to think about doing something else and I'm going to look at this intersection of my talents that's a list. My passions, that's a list. What the world needs, that's a list. Mm-hmm. Where do those things mm-hmm. intercept and intersect? And what does it mean by world? Is it, you know, how do we define that? That's cool. Okay. You, you can take a job and that that's, that's good work right there. But if, if, if some of these folks, please, if you're listening, I'm begging you to just go a little bit deeper, just a little bit deeper before you spring to the next job, because my point is that it's possible if you don't, you're going to be right back where you started from. And so what does that mean to go deeper? And that's what I'm talking about beginning with sorrow. And this isn't for everyone. I know Mm -hmm. I'm just, just talking to a lane of people who've experienced or are experiencing heartbreak. And, and, and as we've been talking in this whole hour, you know, how can we honor the, sacredness of this pain and sorrow in such a way that it will express itself in clarity because we've created space by not only having this conversation with sorrow in our lives, but then actively doing something for someone else, not expecting something in return service. Um, and this is a process. This is a process of 
saying my heart was broken. I have had or have sorrow. Is there someone who needs me in the same place of my sorrow? Somebody who needs me just for something? Can I help them? Mm -hmm. And this is very, this is, I mean, this is Gandhian. This is Christian. This is, you know, many Mm -hmm. faiths of the world would say this. It's the paradox. It's, It's the paradox of finding ourselves. And we won't be able to find ourselves with clarity if we don't create space. And especially for people like me, you know, that are, that are so type A, you know, wound tight research fanatics that, you know, want to find the answers in, in books. And, and we, that, that is not a space creating exercise. And so, right. If, if people can do some work who are quitting their jobs, you know, that right now as we speak, I think they'll find themselves happier in life, you know, and, and they're, and they're happier mm-hmm. in their day if they, if they do a little work around mm-hmm. this. So that's kind of how these steps came about. And I think that's how they apply to the place we're in right now as a country, as a world. Yeah, you, that's, that's wild for 4.3 million people have left their jobs in just August alone. I was one of them. I left my job in July. I was working at a, co- a corporate medical startup and I um, needed to have space and create something that was um, more aligned with my, what I would call my genius zone, your step two and filling the the gap that the world needs. Um, one of the things I love about your steps that always stands out to me is, you know, what you just spoke to is step three or process three is begin with your sorrow. Um, I think that's very contrary to how a lot of people perceive work and doing and, and having a job. And, um, I, I just, I love that. So I actually have a question for you. I, I have a sense of based off your story, your work, your book, um, what has broken your heart today? Um, but I'm curious what breaks your heart now and how are you, um, working with that to create space and continue to weave it into your work? Hmm. Um, as I mentioned, you know, when you asked me in the beginning about pivotal moments in, 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 in large measure, that same moment that I described of desperation, just thinking I could say the right words and my father wouldn't die are with me Mm. today. But, um, this, this notion of healing, um, is I think not, it's not linear and it's not once. So Mm -hmm. I think this is often the sort of misconception, for example, with that some people have with psychedelic experiences is that they think Mm-hmm. that it's a one and done proposition or that the experience itself rather than the integration after it will be the thing that mm-hmm. gives healing. And while for some people that may be true, um, what I think is that the hurt and the major broken heartedness of our lives can, you know, <laughs> rhythmically rear its head in our lives over and over and over again, not, not as something to be conquered, but as something to learn from as a teacher, as a teacher that Mm -hmm. we 
befriend and welcome. And so mm-hmm. that is the thing that I am. Um, that is the, that is what is present right now for me um, spiritually. And I would say this has been, as John of the Cross would describe, a dark night of the soul. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I'm not Catholic, but I am very connected to the monastery. I mentioned to you, my dad went on a church retreat the night before he died. Well, I'm very connected to that monastery and have been for over 20 years. And so the, so the dark night of the soul is what I'm experiencing now. Um, and have been for about the last, you know, six to eight months. And so I'm, I'm, I am in a, a rhythm of learning right now. So, you know, when I wrote the book, mm-hmm. this was very clear to me um, in that moment. Um, and it took three yeah. years to write uh, with my daughter. And, um, and so I'm not uh, that th- those and when I when I thought about, oh, maybe I'll start a chocolate factory. I had, you know, a big moment of clarity, but um, I'm not afraid presently of a lack of clarity. And so um, Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, to, to be present in the dark night as best I can without trying to fix it, without trying to get out of it, without trying to mm. um, um, do anything other than to be present to it and listen to it and let it be my teacher from now until whenever it's not. And um, mm. that is new for me, but it's the same sorrow. It's the same heartbreak. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's mm-hmm. just dressed differently. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. not really disguised, I should say, but, you know, I know, mm. know it for what it is, um, but I can um, be patient with it. And that's the work that I'm doing with a therapist teacher. And the therapist teacher really mm-hmm. is doing nothing other than helping me be patient with it, to be patient with it mm-hmm. um, and to mm-hmm. let it teach me and to not panic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what, sometimes that's what one of the, one of the, I think some of the best teachers really um, develop a skill of helping us walk um, without saying much, but um, subtly allowing us to think that we're, you know, learning and to just teach us and help us to not panic, to not panic um, James Findlay is a contemplative uh, writer and uh, was a novice under Thomas Merton at Gethsemane. He's still alive. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he says um, that I love is he says, I won't break faith with my awakened heart. And so in these moments of darkness, I, I tell myself that, you know, I'm not going to break, I'm not going to break faith with my awakened heart. And Um, so, you know, for me, this is, I was a little bit nervous about coming on your show. I knew we would talk about some of these things and I was Mm -hmm. a little bit reluctant because 
of this period that I'm in in my life because um, mm-hmm. I am not presently much of a soothsayer. You know, I'm not I'm not much of a teacher because I'm I'm in a moment of um, I'm not sure I can't remember when I've been more of a student in the last 10 years Mm -hmm. than I am right now. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I know I've, you know, um, reached that place, you know, that's, that's where I am. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing and for being vulnerable. And I mean, I know we know this intellectually, but to feel it is different in this idea that like the best teachers are always students. And even if we don't feel like it, we have that ability to, the ability to sit with it and to talk about it and to share it, I mean, that's radical. And to do it with, like you're saying, your own words or like the sense of trust and to not wish it away, to take whatever it is there to teach you is 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 100% um, influential for anyone who's listening because the, the most common thing we all hear when we go through a hard time is here are three steps to solve it, here's how to get rid of it. And the radical work that is your work, your life's work, and also a lot of people's work is to to sit with the messy and get friends with the hard and like literally, <laughs> physically, psychologically. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that, that's yes. Like, that's where that's where it lies, you know. Um, well, and that's what you've like been doing. I mean, that's what you you that's what you're doing. Yeah. That's what you're doing with your father. Yeah. You're doing it right yeah. now, and have been. So yeah. you know what this is like. I do. Um, and I appreciate your your reference, too, of like, we have these sort of epiphanies, these aha moments, these turning points in our own spiritual journey and that we can learn something once, but we might have to learn it 10 different ways with 10 different characters in front of us. And I think um, I heard someone say, and I forget her name, but she said, you know, I've been alive long enough that I just know. I have a deep knowing that I'll get through this one because she can look back and see all of her younger personas coming through and coming through. And there's, she wasn't speaking to confidence, but I do think there's something there about that is like this, you're able to sit with it the longer you're on planet earth, you're able to sit with it more. Um, I'm curious. I have three more questions for you. I know we have time and I want to honor your day and your time. We've been talking a lot about this coming into the body, this sitting with it, this feeling with, feeling our way through trauma and through loss and grief. I'm curious from like a, I don't know, physiological level, um, what you might do to connect with your body to help you process and work through things. Um, I I don't know if it's movement or walks or uh, making food. I'm just curious what helps you somatically sort of go through that. If if you and I would have had this discussion 12 months ago, I would have said, I have a certain routine in the morning um, Mm. right after Mm -hmm. I get up that I'd had for years and years. Um, And now I don't have that. I have ceased that (laughs) um, for the reasons that we spoke of a few minutes ago. Those things are not... um, I don't, I, I don't like the phrase working for me, but they aren't, um, mm. presently, um, useful as mechanisms mm-hmm. to do what you asked. 
And so, mm-hmm. um, the only thing really right now, one of the only things is, um, walking. I've walked a lot mm-hmm. for a long time for many years and people kind of joke about meetings I have while walking and, um, yes, just, I mean, I'm, it's a place of creativity for me and, um, I live out. So on, in fact, I, I live like five minutes yeah. from where my grandparents' farm was and, and which is kind of funny because as you mentioned, you know, I would, I wanted to get as far away from that place as I possibly could. Now I have the same zip code that yeah. they did. And, um, Jeez. but so I'm walking outside, walking outdoors is a real place for me, um, presently to connect. Mm-hmm. But I would say this and answer that I have used, you know, these, let's call them tools or you could say exercises in some way to make that connection, mm-hmm. um, a mind, body, spirit connection even. Um, and mm-hmm. now um, I've kind of jettisoned those and I'm really not left with anything. And um, that is... that is in itself a tool. Uh, It's kind of like nothingness is a tool, you Mm -hmm. know, that, um, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. a scary place sometimes because sometimes we can get, especially if you do them long enough, the tools are like our little, our little, um, yeah. Facsimiles, you know, they're they're the facsimiles (laughs) of, of, yes. Right. Right. And then more tools and, and, um, Mm to not have them or to not pick them up and to not use them can be scary at first. And that's one of the benefits where I think a really good teacher can help, um, can help you with that. And that's where I am right now. Okay. Um, I appreciate walking so much. I live close to a park here in Brooklyn and I'm often found just walking, wandering (laughs) through the, Mm -hmm. through the trails. It's one of the best things. Um, my second question to you is what are you actively unlearning these days? You might've already alluded to it. Um, but what's one thing you're sort of marinating on and unlearning about work and life and wherever you are? Um, I knew you were going to ask this question. <laughs> mm. Um, so okay, if you I, want to take a pause too. I, I, I want, I wanted to, um, my favorite quote from Thomas Merton, for those of your listeners who don't know, he wrote seven story mountain. He died in the late sixties. Uh, maybe the most famous American monk, um, to live. And mm-hmm. Pope Francis mentioned him in his address to Congress as one of four great Americans. But mm-hmm. Thomas Merton said, it is the insatiable thirst for recognition of the excellence which we so desperately need to find in ourselves to avoid despair. This claim to omnipotence, our deepest secret, and our inmost shame is, in fact, the source of all of our sorrows, 
all of our unhappiness, all of our dissatisfactions, all of our all of our mistakes and deceptions. And so the unlearning for me in that sentiment is what can I let go of that perhaps I attached to for the, the reasons of the, of the satiating of the separate self, of the false self, which is recognition, mm-hmm. recognition of mm-hmm. excellence, recognition of omnipotence, of how great I am. Mm-hmm. And so the unlearning for me right now, you know, well, I mean, I've, for the last 30 minutes, we've talked about unlearning. So, but, but I'm bringing it to mm-hmm. a very yeah. practical standpoint yeah. of work. So to, you know, there right. are work projects that I am letting go of currently. One that I let go of on Friday, a big one that I've worked on hard for 12 months and it's mm-hmm. gone as of this morning, poof. And, wow. um, and part of it has to do with that, that I just said, which is, can I recognize the, the strands of my desires to please my false self in this project. And if so, it needs to go bye-bye. Um, hmm. Or I need hmm. to be able to transform it into something that is more um, right. connected to my true self and my soul and why I'm really mm-hmm. here. And if I can, then I'll do that. If not, then it needs to go. Right, right. I appreciate that you provided two pathways there of the recognition to continue or to exit, but how you continue matters, it sounds like. Um, thank you for sharing that. I'd love for you to share this last question is just when you don't have to give it a proper definition or anything, but like what comes to mind when you think about the term unlearning? What feelings, thoughts, emotions, words come up when you think about unlearning? Well, the thing that first c- comes up is um, surrender. And mm-hmm. um, Michael Singer, you know, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but um, he wrote Untethered mm-hmm. Soul, among other books. And he says that surrender mm-hmm. is the greatest form of worship. And I, I think it is. And so to me, I view unlearning as surrender. Surrender is often viewed mm-hmm. by many in our culture as some kind of weakness you know, it's this hands up mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm, uh, you know, mm-hmm. you win, I lose, I surrender, but I view it as a hands yeah. up of letting go and that in surrender, we, we, we recognize that we are not alone, that there is a cosmic oneness that we are part of and Mm-hmm. that when we surrender and unlearn, um, we are, you know, practicing the recognition of God in us. Mm-hmm. I so appreciate you speaking about surrendering as the opposite of weakness as something that embodies a huge level of trust and, and strength in many ways. Um, Sean, you've been an incredible guest, incredible teacher, incredible student. I love the work you do. And, um, 
thank you for, for walking this walk and for sharing it with us today and for the broader world. Thank you. Thank you for having me and for asking these questions and, um, peace to you and your father and your family. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our episode today with Sean Askinosi. You can check out the show notes. Um, I've actually included a TED talk that Sean did and also links to Askinosi chocolate. And uh, for a limited time, we're doing a giveaway where if you like and follow the Soul Podcast on Instagram and Askinosi chocolate, um, you will be entered to win not only um, beautiful, amazing chocolate from Askinosi, but also the book Meaningful Work. So go ahead and check out my page on Instagram at The Soul Podcast and enter to win. And lastly, if you've liked this episode or any of the episodes I've ever done, um, you have the opportunity to become a patron of the podcast, which allows for this podcast to continue moving on free of ads, which means uninterrupted, and also free for all to subscribe and to listen to. So you can check out the link to become a patron. $5 goes a long way in keeping a podcast like this going. Um, The link is in the bio and in the show notes. Thank you. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.